Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. If you have a Bible, open it up to John's Gospel, chapter 4. And I'll invite this morning's reader to come up and read to you. Uh, John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And the nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go on your way. Your son lives. So the man, believing the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew it was at that same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign of Jesus. The second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea to Galilee. You know, three weeks ago today, I got home from church and I told my wife, Lindsay, that this is the most physically and emotionally exhausted I've felt in a long, long time. And then I did something I don't think she's ever really seen me do, and that's that I climbed in bed and took like a three-hour nap. Now, it's not the first time on a Sunday afternoon I've fallen asleep on the couch, but to get in bed, she knew that it was a sign that I was officially pretty wiped out. It had been a really long stretch of time, and I had mentioned this just recently to you as a church, a long stretch of several months that felt uh, like I was carrying a pretty high stress level and load. And as we wrapped up our series in Ecclesiastes, I, I mentioned both in the life of our church and in my own life personally, it felt like God took us as a church into Ecclesiastes because we are kind of already living it. As a church, we had suffered loss in this last several months. And for some of you, you're still counting those losses or walking through hard seasons. And, and that's definitely something that weighs on my heart. And then in addition to that, uh, there's some additional workload added and then stepping into chaplaincy for the city, which has been great. But then in my life personally, I had mentioned trying to help a dear friend who needed to get into a rehab program and then having someone that I really deeply love who's really struggling. Um, and with permission, I'll share with you, that's my father-in-law, uh, my, my wife's stepdad who raised her. His physical health and then his mental health both collapsed and he's needed a lot of help and care because he's really on a collision course with homelessness. And so uh, it's been a heavy burden and a lot that I uh, think about often and then carry. And then on that same day as all of those things are weighing on me, I started feeling really intense nerve pain in my face, uh, which was not very comfortable and was keeping me up at night and definitely unpleasant during the day. Uh, for a stretch of really many weeks leading up to that day, I'd allowed the pace of everything and the stress of everything to really squeeze out any healthy rhythm that existed in my life or schedule and to squeeze out my humility that left room for my need for a Sabbath. 
And then on that Monday, I headed to the dentist thinking something's wrong with my teeth, all of them, because all of my face is in such intense pain. And they quickly told me there's nothing wrong with your teeth, but they did notice a series of blisters moving down one side of my face. And by that afternoon, I had quite the rash and then a diagnosis of stress-induced shingles, um, which was a very humbling uh, thing for me. Humbling because of my prolonged amount of stress that I had been carrying that caused basically my body to betray me and wave a white flag and say, it's about time you slow down, bucko. Um, but it was also humbling because I feel like it was pretty foolish that I pushed myself for so long without having the wisdom or the humility to slow down like I needed to. You see, shingles is typically just the byproduct of something. It's really just the symptom of stress. It's actually the way that your body gives you a sign that you're functioning in a way that's unhealthy and that you have to stop. It is your body betraying you, waving a white flag as a sign to you. They CERN as a sign given by your body to point to the fact that you have to slow down. And for me, I went that evening and I picked up an antiviral med that was supposed to lessen the severity and duration of the shingles. And then I sat down with my phone out, looking at my schedule for the next morning, wondering if I should push back one meeting now that I realize that I need to slow down a little bit. Um, which was then when the voice of my wife and a very trusted friend suggested just how foolish I sounded that my way of responding to the sign of my body saying slow down was maybe I'll cancel that one morning meeting and realized that I needed to take a far more dramatic shift, which thankfully I am beginning to heed and thank you to you for praying for me, but also your grace and patience as I figure out what that looks like to have a more healthy rhythm. You see, my body though, I tell you all of this because it was giving me a sign and the purpose of the sign is always to point you to something outside of and beyond itself. That's true of single shingles, excuse me, or it's true of a simple sign on your morning commute on the side of the road. A sign exists to point to a greater reality outside of itself. And what we're doing as a church is we're looking at the seven signs of John. Remember that John chose in his gospel to mark out seven different miraculous things Jesus does, but he doesn't call them miracles. He instead uses the Greek to Latin to English word where we get our word sign for those words. He uses those seven wonderful signs, things that Jesus miraculously do, does, so that they would point to a reality outside of themselves, pointing ahead to the deity and kingship of Jesus. In fact, John chapter 20 tells you exactly why he didn't record all of the signs that Jesus did and only chose these few. He said that he chose these seven signs so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing, you may find life in his name. You see, the signs are not recorded merely to impress me or you. They're recorded to convince us, to convince us that Jesus truly is who he claimed to be and that he's trustworthy. And so the goal of this series is not just that you'd know these signs, but that you would come to trust Jesus to an even greater degree. That is my desire for myself and for each of you as we walk through this. So if a sign points beyond itself, then what is this sign that we just had read to us of a father coming on behalf of his son who's on his deathbed, begging Jesus to come and heal him? What does this sign point to? Well, there's three simple things that I'd love to walk through with you very quickly, especially the first two we'll just quickly touch because you'll see that they'll be answered throughout the remainder of our discussion. But the three things are this. It points to Jesus being greater than a mere magician or even a prophet. 
That's what this sign points to. It also points to Jesus uniquely being the hope for the hopeless. And then the final thing that it really points to and emphasizes, and this is really the main thrust, I think, of the whole story, is the nature and growth of genuine faith. The nature and growth of genuine faith. I think that this story is recorded for us to point to us at what Jesus is after when it comes to our faith in him. Oh yes, it shows us his identity, but it also shows us how he beckons and calls for us to believe and to trust in him. So let's begin with the first thing that I think the sign is pointing to, and that's Jesus being greater than some mere magician or a genie or even then a prophet. Jesus is greater than them all. You see, in the Old Testament, there are many prophets, and some of them even got to see some pretty miraculous signs. You think of someone like Daniel, who got to see God deliver him from the belly of a pit, a den of lions. You think of Jonah, who saw the miraculous when God preserved him from the belly of a great fish. But there are other prophets, just a select few, who got to even, in a sense, perform the miracle. Not that it was their own power, it was the power of God moving through them. But at times, at their word even, God responded and moved in power. You should be picturing people like Moses with the ten plagues or speaking to the rock and water coming out. You should be thinking of someone like the prophet Elijah and him even raising a boy from the dead. You should think of Elisha. Because Elisha has quite possibly the most unique miracle in all of the Old Testament. Because there was this one miracle where Elisha was not even physically present, and yet God moved in miraculous power. It proved that the power wasn't Elijah's at all, but it was the power of his God. But Elisha was uniquely connected to that God. It was so very unique because every other one of the miraculous works done in the Old Testament by the prophets, they had to be physically, geographically present. But not so when you remember maybe the story. In 2 Kings chapter 5, the commander of the Syrian army, who, who may even be categorized and referred to as a nobleman because of his own prestige and power and prominence, he hears of this Elisha, this, this prophet who's a miracle worker, and he travels a great distance. Some of this should start to sound familiar to you. Travels a great distance because of his desperation as much as the little bit of faith that he may or may not have had because he was facing a death sentence. For him, he had leprosy. And he arrives only to be told by Elisha's servants that the miracle-working prophet would not come and do what he was asking him to do. Instead, he was telling him to journey a far way away and to wash in the Jordan River seven times. And if he did that, he would be healed. So he sent away to go out to the Jordan believing by faith that somehow the prophet would still have authority. If you remember the story, he scoffs at this. He's offended at it. And then someone gets in his ear and says, we've traveled this far, and what else do we have? What other hope is there? And the man began to comply. And in the story, his faith then became established and solidified after seeing that the death sentence was lifted off of him as God miraculously healed him as he obeyed by faith the word that was spoken to him. To me, it's kind of wild that these seven signs of John seem to be echoes of distant past miracles that God had performed in the Old Testament, and this one is no exception. We are seeing God do a similar thing here in this moment through Jesus, and the miracle and sign here is wanting to point you to a reality that Jesus would be greater than just some magician or genie or prophet even. 
No prophet or healer could do miracles unless they were physically present. This is why the man who comes to Jesus in the story is so very adamant that Jesus, you must come with me. You're going to notice he asked him two different times because he knows how things work and function with the exception of that one time, Elisha and the leprous man, where no one had ever been healed of that leprosy and no one had ever been healed like that, where they were not physically geographically present, that they had to leave by faith and, and, and leave to fulfill the request of the one with authority and see if by faith God would respond. You see, we have a tendency to, as modern people, to say, I'll believe it when I see it. And there's good reason why we say it. We don't want to be naive or gullible. But for so many people, they live with that almost as a mantra or a mentality, especially when it comes to areas of their faith in God. And some people, even it's, it's exclusively in that area that they have that attitude of, I'll believe it when I see it. Because every other area of our life, we have to admit that we are constantly living by faith, willing to believe things long before we see them. It may become, over time, it's become far more increasingly difficult to believe things without seeing them, especially when it comes through our media outlets. I mean, even last weekend is a great example of that. Hillary, Hillary, <laughs> Hurricane Hillary could be renamed Hurricane Padres because of how overhyped and how underdelivered it was. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? It's been a rough year. <laughs> We're used to believing long before we see it, though, and even making life adjustments to our activity, not just our thinking, around what we're told, believing the source that's told us. But in our story here, Jesus requires the man to believe and to take a step of faith before he could even see, before he could see what he desired and needed, before he could see that Jesus was willing to do it. So if a sign exists to point beyond itself, what does the sign point our attention towards? It's Jesus wanting us to see him as far greater than merely a prophet. He's so different than anyone who had come before him. In fact, he's wanting you to see that second thing, that he is uniquely the hope for the hopeless, that there's no other place to turn except to Jesus, just as he is right here, the hope for this hopeless man. You might remember that John's gospel is very unique in how it was written, not just because it was written much later than the other gospels, but it's also not referred to as a synoptic gospel. Synoptic means a synopsis, a brief overview of the whole life and ministry and teaching of Jesus. That's what the other three give us. John chooses to write differently. And in choosing to write differently, he leaves a lot out. And all he does before this miracle is slightly tip his cap in a previous verse right before this, where he mentions that Jesus had done many other miracles. There had been other signs. So we know going into this that although this is just the second one he lists, that Jesus has already been known, become known as a great teacher and a miracle worker. And that's why we're finding this guy show up like this. Now, the guy that shows up, we don't know much about him other than that he's called a nobleman. Commentators agree, or I'm sorry, agree on almost nothing. They disagree on pretty much everything regarding this guy because they begin to speculate. They begin to speculate who this guy might be. The only thing we know, the nobleman. It's this interesting old word in Greek that's closely linked to the word basilica, which is a basilica is a word that we reserve to describe only the most awe-inspiring and prestigious of buildings. But the word that's used is basilikos. And it was reserved for those who were the most prestigious and the most influential. And undoubtedly, this is a man that is being described that way because he's someone who has great resources. 
We don't know what his identity was, his name or his actual title. We don't even know his nationality, and commentators will disagree on whether he's a Jew or a Greek. No one knows. We don't even know if he traveled alone or if he traveled with an entire entourage. All we know is what John thought we needed to know, which was that the man was a man of prestige and prominence, and that he was the father of a very, very sick young boy. John gives you these details because he doesn't want you to assume that Jesus was his only option, that he's coming to Jesus out of desperation and in faith because he's got no money and no influence and no resources available to him. No, John's wanting you to imagine with him that this man's exhausted every resource, all of it. He's tried it all. Every other option, it's gone. It's been tapped out. And then he runs to Jesus like a quarterback who throws a Hail Mary as time is expiring. This is his last-ditch effort, but the stakes are far higher than the clock merely expiring and losing a ball game. He's losing his son. And the journey for him, that Hail Mary pass, the journey to get to the healer was not a simple or small task at all. It's not a short walk for the father just to check in with Jesus to see if he'll help. We're talking about needing to imagine a father leaving his son who's sick unto death, he says, in the city of Capernaum, which is on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee. And if you haven't been to Israel, I hope I'm not bursting your bubble, but the Sea of Galilee is actually not a sea, it's a lake. It's a lake that's 30 miles inland from the coast. And the place that he's walking to in order to find Jesus and convince him to travel home with him was a hilly trek towards the coast at a distance that along modern streets that then have been paved on top of ancient trade routes It would stretch almost the length of a marathon, this walk. We're talking a serious hike through peaks and valleys in that arid stretch of land, eclipsing the 20-mile marker easily and taking a solid eight hours to make the journey. In fact, we learn later on that his encounter with Jesus took place at 1 p.m. If he began his trek at the first sight and hint of dawn, at dawn's first light, and traveled to Jesus, walked the whole time, it would have taken him roughly eight hours till about 1 p.m. for Jesus to have this encounter. That walk would not have been a calm one or a leisurely one. We're talking an exhausted dad who's emotionally already wrung dry. My point in telling you this is to highlight that what we're told about this nameless man is that the man was so determined to get to Jesus, the teacher and the great healer, clearly the man was desperate and he had some semblance of faith that Jesus could do something for him that he could not do for himself, something that he could not even do for his own son. And this is what he finds, precisely what he finds Jesus able and capable of doing. However, Jesus would not do it in the way that he had presumed or hoped for. You see, we come to this story knowing that it's pointing to an even greater reality outside of itself, and it's Jesus showing them and us that he's greater than a prophet, and he's showing, revealing that he's uniquely the hope for the hopeless, and he's going to do that. You'll see that as we discuss this other thing, the third thing, and that's the nature and the growth of genuine faith. He's going to do that. He's going to reveal his true identity as he's going to draw faith out of this individual, as he's going to draw faith out of a weary father who right now is pretty desperate and maybe just has a little ounce of faith. You know, I love interacting with people who don't share my faith in Jesus. 
And I love when they hear what I do, and, and I've told you before, I love when they give me the weird look like, oh, you're a pastor, and then they rethink everything they said, and if they swore, and then they start apologizing for the words and the language that they use, those sorts of things. Or I love watching their reactions. They pull back, and then I'll tell them, like, well, clearly you have a visceral reaction right now. Tell me about the God you don't believe in, because I might not believe in him either. I love to pull people in with me to talk or, or for them to react and me to ask them, well, I mean, do you consider yourself a person of faith? I love that question because it is a trap. Because the truth is we all are people of faith. No, the truth is probably 99% of us, we think of other people as people naturally having, having a lean or a bent towards faith. Like some people, it almost seems natural or instinctive for them to be people of, we'd call them people of great faith. But most of us would say that's not us. For me, that's not me. I'm naturally really cynical. It's not a gift, it's curse. I call it analytical because it sounds more politically correct. But like, I'm a natural doubter. It's not easy for me. I think it helps me in different areas of my life to relate to people and things, but it also at times pushes me away from people. It's not a gift, it's more of a curse. But for me, I'm not naturally a person of faith. But, but you need to understand that faith is not, and this is why I love roping people into this conversation, my faith is not just blind trust. It's not blind faith. And that's what so many people think of people of faith as being. Just people who can. They have the ability to close their eyes and have blind faith. But that's not what any of us are. Of, uh, of all of us, all people of faith, you had you had faith today as you walked in here and sat down in this chair, and I didn't see a single one of you shake the chair first. All of us function with faith. When you got in your car, how many of you before turning the ignition worried that it wouldn't turn over? Now, how many of you as you drove in your car were thinking, I wonder who has had too much to drink and was out all night partying and might be on the road next to me? You drove in good faith. You're not thinking through those things or of those things. But let's be fair and clear. The reason that you have faith in those things is because of reason and experience. The reason you didn't check the chairs is you walked in and looked around. You thought, it's relatively clean in here. I'm sure they take care of the place. You just in the back of your mind are, are, are filing that information away. If you walked in and the place was falling over, you probably would have shaken the chair first. If you drive an old beater then you not only, before turning the ignition, gave a thought, you probably gave a prayer that that thing would turn over because most of us have been there in a car. Or if you were recently in an accident where you were T-boned or blindsided, well, then your drive here probably looked very different and was animated by fear because you have now new reason, new thinking added to your thought process as you go. You see, all of us are people of faith. All of us live by faith constantly. It's Martin Luther who's credited with giving a three words, three words in Latin, a three words summation of what real faith looks like. Those three words are notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Notitia, it means you have the information. You have a general understanding of the facts. Ascensus, that's when your understanding is then embraced. Like, hey, I get it, but now it's becoming a conviction in my heart. Now I hold it. I don't just get it. I'm hanging on to it. But fiducia is when you then choose to entrust yourself to it. That's the action that comes out of it. The idea of Luther is that faith is seeing the information, believing it's true, and then living as if it is. That's what faith is. Seeing the information, believing it's true, and then living as if it is. See, James chapter 2, verse 19 makes it clear that simply knowing or believing is not saving faith. You have to do something with it. Because James says, even the demons believe and they tremble in fear. 
Even they believe and have a, have a reverential fear for God, but they're not yielding to him and obeying him. Real faith is not just seeing the information and believing it's true. It's also living as if it is. You see, genuine faith is more than just belief. It's beyond that. It's entrusting oneself to that belief and conviction. Several months ago, my youngest daughter, Declan, she's six, she came home from school one day having learned about a trust fall from a kid on the playground. And it was the cutest thing, like her just walking around the house and her just, you'd hear her yell, trust fall. <laughs> it was cute, except she'd like pulled it on you when you least expect it. I'd just be walking down the hall, she'd be going the other way and she'd go, trust fall and fall backwards. Like, I don't think you understand. You could really hurt yourself. You know what a trust fall is, right? Where you keep your legs stiff and then you just whole body stiff like a plank and you fall backwards, trusting that someone will be there behind you for Declan, just hoping someone would walk past her and catch her. But no, for all of us, it'd be that people are behind you ready and able to trust or to catch you as you trust fall. The reason Declan got such a kick out of it, I think, was because she saw that I thought it was so cute and funny, but also because I think she got a little bit of a rush out of it. Because it's a scary thing, right? To watch or to feel your center of gravity shift as you go backwards over. You know what I think she liked the most, though? Is her older two siblings couldn't do it like she did. No, they couldn't. Every time they'd go to fall back, they'd stick a foot out to shift their center of gravity and keep themselves from falling. They'd lean back. I'd tell them to trust me. And they'd say, yeah, yeah, I trust you. And I'd say, well, then go for it. And they'd say, trust fall. And then they'd start going, nope. And they'd step back very quickly. My therapist tell me I'll get over it eventually, that, that my children don't trust me or, or my ability to catch them one or the other. But like for now, I'm trying to deal with it. But I know in reality, the real issue is that their little sister is either too naive to realize that she could really hurt herself, or, or she's too naive in, even to realize that sometimes accidents happen. She's too young to realize that injustice is a thing, like things don't always work out the way that they should in life. It's, she just doesn't get it yet. She looks at me and thinks, my dad will catch me 100 times out of 100 because he loves me, and this is what dads do. But the truth is, I've got limited strength. I could make a mistake. I could get distracted or overlook her falling and miss her completely. Or like this morning, I could just be kind of frustrated with her where she came and sat down next to me and I grabbed her foot and lifted her foot up and said, yep, there's the toe with the, the hangnail that was scratching me in my back all night when you climbed into bed with us and kept kicking around. I think you may have even drawn blood. It could be that I'm just like, you know what? Here's payback's a bummer, D. You're gonna learn your lesson. And, Trust fall, there you go. But Declan doesn't think that way. Her, her viewpoint of the world, it's simple and sure. And it's not because I deserve it. It honestly, if anything, it's because she's naive. Oh, how different things are, though, when your faith is in a faithful God, who, yes, is just in every way and also is so very loving. A God who would prove to us that his love is equally as powerful as his justice when he'd be willing to suffer and die for the unjust. You see, I fall into the arms of the one who loves me more and better than anyone else could. I fall into the arms of the one who's got a greater amount of wisdom than anyone I will ever know. Faith for me is falling into the arms of the one with an even greater capacity and strength than we can even begin to fathom. You see, faith is just this. Faith is falling on the Father's faithfulness. It's falling back on, trust fall, the Father's faithfulness. It's choosing to trust the one who's proven himself to be trustworthy. You see, the roots of that kind of confidence in my life are only found in one place, and it's the foot of the cross. 
If he loves me enough to become breakable and broken, then he's worthy of my trust each and every day. If a son was willing to be treated as an enemy so that I, who was in rebellion against God, could be received as a son, that is where the roots of my faith are found. And that's why I can fall back on the Father's faithfulness. That's why I can live a life of faith. Think about what this story teaches us about the nature and the growth of faith. It wasn't a blind faith that caused this man to journey to follow Jesus. It was the combination, really, of his distrust and lack of confidence in his own ability to remedy the situation and a trust and confidence in Jesus' ability to do something about it. I think that's the breeding ground of genuine faith. It will always involve distrust and trust. A distrust in my own ability and my own capacity and a trust in its place of God's ability and God's capacity. I so appreciate how author and Pastor Timothy Keller said it. He defined faith this way while discussing this. He said, faith is born out of thinking. It grows out of the will and only matures in trouble. Isn't that true? Faith is born out of thinking. It grows out of the will and only matures in trouble. You see, Scripture doesn't teach us about a blind faith. On the contrary, Scripture calls you to engage your mind, not to disengage it. Your mind should go to the ancient prophet Isaiah, who, speaking on behalf of God to his people, he invites him, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. It's the New Testament author, the Apostle Paul, who in Romans chapter 12, he would appeal to us to, because of the mercies of God in our life, that we should present our body to God as a living sacrifice each and every day because it is our reasonable service, because it's our logical conclusion. In light of what God has done for us, if we engage our mind, this is what's reasonable, rational. It's what's logical. I'll say it again. The Bible does not teach us to live by blind faith. On the contrary, Scripture calls you to engage your mind, not to turn it off, not to disengage it. You see, faith, I believe, always begins with information. For, for an example of this, my mom this week, or this past week, she signed up to take an exercise in faith by going this coming week on Friday to get a back surgery. Now, her back surgery has no guarantees that it's going to provide the relief that she really wants and needs, but the way that her faith has grown in the process of making that choice for surgery has been by her accumulating information, not just closing her eyes and saying, sure, she didn't feel good about that. No, she accumulated information. She did her research on both the doctor and on the procedure. She weighed out the risks against the information that, that she's able to pull about its success rate and the benefits of the procedure. And, and then she considered her life without it. Is, is living in her pain and discomfort something that she feels outweighs the risk involved? Yes, it's an act of faith for her to move forward, but it's not blind faith. It's not like she found the surgeon on Craigslist and he does business out of his garage or something and said, like, come on over. I'm sure I can figure this out as we go. It's not like there was no reasoning involved in the process for her. Reason is present, and it's what actually enables her to have faith, to choose to believe in spite of the uncertainty. Now, Friday morning comes, and she wakes up, and she's overwhelmed by fear, and she says, you know what? I just don't think I can do it. 
because she's overwhelmed of the thought of being put under or them monkeying, monkeying with her spine or, or overwhelmed at the thought of a scalpel's involvement or the risk of infection, then maybe at that point, maybe she does cancel and back out. But you'd have to agree, she didn't have a lapse in faith because of her reason. Really, the lapse in faith is in spite of her reason. It's really because she stopped thinking. It's that she's no longer thinking about how much pain she lives in each day or all the research that she's done, or about the things she's hoping to be able to be able to do again on the other side of the procedure. The reason she had a lapse of faith is because of a lack of reason, because she stopped thinking and she'll start fearing in its place. You see, for so many of us, though, we don't think of faith this way. We think of faith as being the thing that has to kick in when we just have no idea what to do. So we close our eyes, click our heels together and say, there's no place like home. There's no place like home and hope that something good happens. But I don't think that that's what faith is. Remember, please, the words of Isaiah the prophet where God invites, come reason together with me, says the Lord. Oh, it's true, as Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But I hope you see and understand that the faith it's asking for is not blind faith. Yes, the scriptures say that we walk by faith and not by sight. It does, however, not say that we do not walk by reason or that we walk through life with our eyes closed. It's telling you instead that we go on what we know to be true, not just on what we see, not just on what we feel or fear, not just on what we worry might happen. We don't make mistakes based on those things. You see, the point that it's telling you is not to close your eyes. It's telling you, you should have something deeper. You should have a foundation beneath what you see or feel or fear or worry might happen. Something beneath that that carries you through each chapter of your life. And the thing beneath it is our faith in a good and loving God who's been faithful to us. That regardless of, of what we see and how we can't see how it could work out or what we fear or what we feel or what we worry might happen, that it doesn't change the fact that I have a good God who calls himself my shepherd. In Isaiah 42, the psalmist famously asks, he asks, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his presence. He famously asked this question of himself. He's talking to himself, looking beneath the surface to reason and ask the hard question of why do I feel this way? Again, quoting Keller, he says, the difference between faith and doubt is this. Unbelief is listening to your heart. Faith is talking back to it. My friends, doubt is natural, and faith is not the absence of doubt. It is rather the benefit and choice to move forward even in the presence of doubts. You see, my mom Friday will either listen to our heart as she wakes up nervous, or she will talk back to it. If she listens, she will only hear things like, this could be a mistake. What, what, what if the online reviews are fake? Or what if the surgeon doesn't really even know what she's doing? But if she, if she talks back to her heart, she will remind herself of what she knows to be true and she'll be able to move forward in faith. Because I think that is what faith is. Real faith does not begin and end with thinking. Yes, it begins there, but it has to move beyond there. Because real faith requires that you take steps forward. Remember Luther, it's seeing the information, it's believing that it's true, but then it's also living as if it is. That's real faith. 
As one author observed, he says, I don't really know that you can have faith without thinking, but I'm certain that you can sure think without having faith. You see, your thinking has to shift into your will because faith is about thinking and doing. And this is where some people's quote-unquote faith in Christianity, their faith and embrace of Jesus, is honestly far less than they really claim that it is. Because it's merely thinking the right things about Jesus and themselves, but not having any actual real-life impact on their life or activity. And this is where the words of James in the New Testament should ring in your ears when he comments that such faith without works is dead. You see, face presence in my mom is what enabled her to schedule the appointment and what will enable her to drive to it on Friday. And you might be thinking, Trevor, you're like beating a dead horse with this whole illustration of like having faith in a doctor because that's so very different. Faith in God is so different than that, Trevor. But is it? Or if it is, why is it so different in your mind? Is it because God is unseen and the doctor is seen? Because the truth is, my mom knows far less about that doctor than she'd probably care to admit. I mean, she could say, I know what his credentials are. I can read his diploma on the wall in his office or find information regarding the board certification. I can look online to see reviews or even try to interview some of his coworkers or even his patients. But she doesn't really know him. She doesn't know if he had a roommate in college who was really smart that he paid off to take all the tests for him. She'll have to embrace faith, though, in the midst of uncertainty about him and the job that he'll do based upon what she does know and has learned and believed to be trustworthy about him. How different is that from God? That you'll have to embrace faith in the midst of uncertainty about him and the job that he'll do where you're uncertain in moments, but your certainty is based upon what you do know and have learned and believed to be trustworthy and true about him. John's gospel begins with a statement that's very fair, saying no one's ever seen God. No one knows for certain. But then it beautifully says this about him. No one has ever seen him, John 1.18, but the one and only son who is God himself and is the closest relationship with the father has made him known to us. Or in other translations, Jesus has come to declare him to us. Hebrews 1.3 describes Jesus as the express image of the Father. It's, it's the word that means to mint a coin, to press a coin. The idea is that there are two that are cut from the same mold. So you have one that's concealed and one that's revealed. God who's unseen and yet Jesus who's seen. You can tell me a lot about that which is concealed by looking at that which is revealed because they're cut from the same mold. That's the idea. You see, everything you want to know about God, you learn by looking at Jesus. And what I know about God then is that he is at least as compassionate as Jesus at least as loving as Jesus proved himself to be, at least as powerful and wise as Jesus demonstrated over and over again. You see, I can step forward in life to face an unknown future because I face it with a very known God. That's why we have this book. Because you can live with confidence knowing I face an unknown future, but I face it with a very known God. You know, years ago, I can remember telling a friend about my plans to ask Lindsay to marry me. And I thought he'd be really excited. And I guess that he was, but his response was a little bit odd. He just inquisitively looked at me and says, well, well, how do you know? And with, with my blank stare kind of reflecting back at him, the, the same amount of confusion, he just elaborated and says, how do you know that she's the right person for you? Like, how do you know that this will all work out in the future? The truth was I had no way of actually knowing. 
It's not, a, it's not like a, a scientific way. There's no scientific way for me to do enough experimentation to therefore prove beyond any doubt. It's not a mathematical equation where I can run the numbers and say, well, A plus B equals a long and happy life together, free of frustration or complaint or anything. Now, the best offer any of us had in that moment in time in our lives is that we might be facing an unknown future, but we knew that we are walking into it with a very known person whom we love and experience so much joy with. You see, there's faith involved in that decision, but it wasn't blind faith. It's not like the guy asked me and I said, I don't know, her bio online that I read for the first time this morning seems great, and I'm meeting her tonight, and I'm going to hand her a ring. That's not how it played out at all. We knew each other, and it already demonstrated the depth of care we had for one another. That's why I moved forward. We didn't know what the future would hold, but we felt confident that we knew whose hand we'd be holding as we walked together into that unknown future. That's why we took the step of faith together. And my friends, Hebrews tells you that you have a God who is immutable, that he and his promises, not just his promises, but his very nature are immutable. It means unchanging in nature or character that he is unchanging and faithful. Oh, you have a life ahead of you that is full of uncertainty undoubtedly, but you hold the hand of the one that you can know with great confidence is unchanging and faithful. Faith might begin by thinking, but it only continues into existence where there's action connected to it. Oh, it's true, you'll never find faith where you're not thinking, but you must be willing with that thought to also take steps forward in faith. Remember, faith, it's born out of thinking. It grows out of the will, but it only matures in trouble. And this is what you see play out in the end of this story, isn't it? It's also what you see play out in our own lives, that faith seems to only mature in trouble. You see, this man had undoubtedly heard and believed all the reports regarding Jesus, the miracle-working healer and teacher. And after days by the, the bedside of his son, that must have felt like a hopeless length of eternity for a father to watch this play out, of trying and wishing and waiting and hoping and longing for his precious son to be well again but finding instead that, that everything that they seemed to try had little or no impact at all. And until finally, the strength or resolve or faith or whatever it was allowed him to push himself away from his son's bedside, leaving the arms of his bewildered wife and setting off at a furious pace to try to retrieve the great healer and convince him to come back to rescue his son. To leave his son's bedside, it was a risk of not being present when his son would call his name for one final time. It's a risk of the unimaginable for a parent to leave your partner, your spouse, to face that bleak moment in time alone. But his only chance, the only thing that he can think of as an option at this point is to bring the healer back. If they wait, surely the boy will perish. And maybe he took a chariot or maybe he hopped on a horse. It doesn't give us those details. Presumably, though, his journey was on foot. And I've only traveled a distance that far of over 20 miles once in my life on foot. I ran a marathon once. It was enough to cure me of the desire to ever do it again. <laughs> this is what the guy is enduring right now, a weary-hearted, broken father whose heart and emotions had already been wrung dry by what he saw play out in front of him. But now his physical strength has been run dry too as he reaches finally the great healer and begins to beg him, because that's the wording that's used there. 
to go back with him and to heal his son, who he says at the end of verse 47, my son who is on the brink of death. I don't think we should picture some cool, calm, and collected moment here where the dad just shows up looking good, fresh, just had a shower and a shave, looks at Jesus and says, sir, I'm asking and petitioning, would you come with me? I think we're meant to see the chaos involved and a desperate parent begging on behalf of their child. You know, I sat with some first responders this last week, some firemen, and the conversation ended up going the direction that it often goes, where they begin to talk about some of the trauma that they have had involved in the calls that these men and women are responding to. And many of those calls that involve the most trauma involve children for two reasons. One is that it shatters a worldview for them. And the worldview that all of us share is that this kind of stuff shouldn't happen to kids, that these kinds of moments shouldn't happen. Kids should bury their parents, not the other way around. That's part of why it's traumatic. The other reason, though, that'll often come up in that conversation is they'll talk about the trauma involved in seeing a parent with that kind of fear in their eyes, with the tone that they had, or the requests as they're begging that these people would do something for their child that these people know they can't do. They know that they can't rescue a child who's already gone. That's what's so traumatic for them. I think that's the kind of scene we're being pulled into here where this man is here to beg Jesus. The stakes in the story couldn't be any higher in this moment for a father and for his dying child. He went to Jesus, verse 47 says, and implored him, entreated, he beseeched him, he begged him to come down to heal his son. That word son, it's a diminutive and a possessive term that he uses. It communicates my son, mine who's loved. Please, I've got a child that needs your touch. He's begging him for he's at the point of death. And Jesus responds in verse 48 and says exactly what we'd assume he'd say, right? Not at all. He's up to it again. I mean, last week it was his response to his mother that seemed abrasive at first glance. And here it is again, where here he says, unless you people, which you need to know, I'm told that that's a plural form in the Greek tense of you. So it's reads as y'all. He's not just speaking to the man only, but to the crowd of people around him. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Where's the compassion, Jesus? You see, the place that this story is situated in John's gospel is, is building a contrast. There are the Samaritans right before this who believed without seeing a sign. They believed Jesus at his word. But now, you remember, he's back in Cana, the neighboring community to his hometown of Nazareth, and he's telling them that you people, you won't believe you're saying unless you see a sign, but he knows they'll see it and still not believe. But what he does simultaneously is seemingly draw faith out of this man because faith only matures in trouble and in adversity. In verse 49, the nobleman, he persists and says, pleading with Jesus, sir, come down before my child dies. You know what I'll tell you? This is for me. I read the story and I just, I try to picture myself in this moment. I don't know that I would have responded as this man did, where he begs again. I might have said, you know what? I don't have time for this. Why did I even come here? You're going to respond and tell me that I'm not going to believe unless I see it? I came all the way here. Just come with me. Then I can see it and believe. But that was it, wasn't it? That's what he was saying. Come with me and then I'll see it and I'll believe. And Jesus says, I'm not going to let you do that. I want you to trust me, to believe me before you even see it. You see, for so many of us, I think this is the, the point, the rub in our faith. When we come to moments like this and we say, Jesus, we've got it all worked out how you're going to do this. And now you're being obstinate, not willing to do it my way. 
And this is where we argue with him rather than continuing just to plead with him. Well, then Jesus, please. Nameless nobleman here doesn't do what we'd expect him to respond and do. And look again how Jesus finishes our story by still refusing to go with him, telling him, go your way, your son, he lives. You see, the man, he came to Jesus believing that he's his only and final hope, begging for Jesus to do the impossible, believing even that he could. He has faith here. And we know why he had it. It's because he's heard the reports of Jesus. It's because he thought and he reasoned. It's not because he closed his eyes to reality. It is because he opened his eyes to the amazing, incredible reality of Jesus' power. The faith didn't just drive him to action, to walk the 20 miles with the heart overcome with grief and worry, to bring his request to Jesus. That faith found itself in an extreme situation when Jesus would not do things the way that he wanted him to do. Jesus would not do things the way that he imagined that God must do it if he's going to heal my son. Because Jesus told him he wouldn't go with him. It's an impossible moment. I mean, how does his father move forward? What's he going to do? How can he leave Jesus? He's the one remedy to the greatest problem his life has ever seen. How does he leave him by faith rather than taking him as if an item he will use, as if a genie in the bottle he'll rub in the presence of his son in order to make his son free, to make his son well again. How will he leave him? And now he's stuck between the answer and the worst dilemma of his life on that journey home. He had to trust Jesus to take him, it says here, at his word. He had to release the way that he thought it ought to be as he probably thought. He had to release the way it needed to be as he could have demanded. He had to release all to Jesus and begin to see him as more than just a magician or merely a genie or a prophet. He's here submitting to Jesus by obeying as if he is God himself, which is exactly who he was. He is his only hope. You see, faith begins with reason, but it requires an action. And faith only grows and matures in pressure and pains. You see it even in this man. We know that he came to Jesus because of his desperation, because he believed that he could do something. But at the end of the story, it says that it is when he and his whole, whole household began to believe in Jesus was in the very moment that he saw Jesus fulfill his word. That, that he and his household then believed in Jesus when he came home and was told that his son was healed at the very moment, the very same hour that he had stood before Jesus. But what's that all about? I thought that the guy believed in Jesus and that's why he went. Well, it's telling you that his faith took on a whole new form when his faith was tried and tested through pain and he saw that Jesus was faithful still. You see, I think this is how faith works even in our modern life that does its best to hide itself from any pain or discomfort. You see, faith will only grow when it faces pain and pressure and yet chooses to persevere through it. That is when we find as we step forward in faith that Jesus is good and that he's still worthy of our trust, leading to an even greater confidence that we can trust him with our future, that we can trust an unknown future into the hands of a very known God. I'll just briefly say this. The important thing about faith is not about the quantity or the quality, it's about the substance. I'll give you an example. I went skydiving at the first of the year for my birthday, which is a weird celebration, I understand. But most people who skydive, what you do when you jump out is you reach for something to hang on to because you're free falling from 10,000 plus feet. 
Most people grab onto the harness because that makes lots of sense, right? Not at all, actually. I'm holding onto a harness. What, what I'm actually strapped to that matters, the, the real object of my faith should have been the guy who smelled like B.O. and weed behind me. Like, and I'm hoping that he was more meticulous in the way that he packed the parachute than he was with his personal hygiene. That's what I'm hoping. But all of us, we grab on and hang on. The, the quantity, the quality of that grip, it was there. But I could fall 15,000 feet and hit the ground. Still, my faith, it was sure strong, but it was not in the right thing. The object of my faith was all wrong. You see, even in this man, his, his faith seems small. He's arguing with Jesus, you've got to do it this way. But the quantity and quality of your faith don't matter so much as the object of your faith. Or remember the other father in another story in the Gospels who came to Jesus and said, please deliver my son from the evil that torments him. And Jesus says, it's possible if you believe. And remember what he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus responded and healed him. Because apparently real faith still looks like that. It's imperfect. Because what matters more than the quantity or quality of your faith is the object of your faith. And even for that father, the quantity and quality wasn't so hot. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief, though. It's not like Jesus said, well, when you work it up to a bigger muscle, then maybe I'll come back and maybe we can try this again. That's all that he needed. It was all that he was asking for. See, in our story here, this man came begging Jesus to rescue and heal his son from the evil that plagued him. He's begging him again and again. And Jesus sent him away to walk by faith. And then he believed when he saw that Jesus did the very thing that he had promised. You can close your Bible. I appreciate very much the words of a pastor and author by the name of Nick Cady regarding this passage and the subject of our faith. When he asked the question, he says, do you worship and follow Jesus because he's useful to you? Or do you worship and follow Jesus because he's beautiful? You see, if you follow Jesus simply because you believe he's useful to you, you will soon find that he's less than a winning lottery ticket or a genie in a bottle. That's never who he was, even if it's that, that's who we've hoped, secretly hoped that he would be for us. You see, we soon learn whether it is that we believe Jesus is meant to serve us or we are meant to serve him when we find ourselves in these hard moments in life where expectations go unmet, where dreams go unfulfilled, where pain still remains, where the genie in the bottle doesn't yield what we wanted him to do. In those moments, if you throw your hands in the air and walk away, it reveals that you only followed him because you believed that he was useful. You believed that he was meant to serve us rather than us to serve him. The irony is all the stories about the genie in the bottle, they exist because, yes, it's a fun thought experiment to think of what you might do, but they exist to show us how terrible it is when we actually get what we want. It's like a lottery ticket. I was around a group of guys this week and they were asking if people wanted to pool money and someone said, how much money could you make before ruining your life? Because sure, it's a fun thought experiment to think of what you might do, but also we know the reality is that it ruins most every family and life that that thing touches for himself. Remember today that what, what is impossible for man is still not impossible for God. Even the sparing of the father's own son in the story we just read. And we believe that because there's a father who did not spare his son. In fact, that's what the book of Romans tells us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also give us freely all things? You see, this little story is, is meant to take your mind to the grand story of the Bible, where there's another weary father who's seen life slip away out of his beloved son. However, the father, he in that story would have the resources and ability to rescue his son from that sentence of death that loomed over him as he hung on the cross. He would choose, though, not to rescue his son from certain death because it would be the way that he would welcome many other sons and daughters home into his family. You see, this is the Jesus I run to today. This is the God that I trust today, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And so, Father, we thank you today for this reminder of your faithfulness and love. We're reminded today that you don't face the limitations that we have. That even when we're overwhelmed and have our best plan A, B, or C, even when those things go unmet, that you have a greater plan still and still have wisdom and power and love that's present. Father, I'm praying specifically for those who come in today with their faith feeling very weak and them feeling very overwhelmed. I pray today, Jesus, that they would cling to you as the object of their faith. They turn again to you and say, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus, I believe. Lord, help me. Help us with our unbelief, with our fears, with our tendency to pick up things and carry responsibilities that don't belong to us. Help us to trust you, the one who is trustworthy in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.